This morning we are wrapping up our sermon series called Chelton's DNA, where as Pastor Bill mentioned last week, it's not actually that unique to Chelton. It's actually the same DNA that exists in every local church and the church at large, the universal church. That at every church you find worship of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. You find love, care, nurture, whatever word you want to choose among the brothers and sisters of Christ. And you also find a reaching out to the world around us with the good news of Jesus Christ. And while there are three key elements to every, the mission of every church, you might hear it packaged a little differently. Maybe it's kind of simplified into two points or expanded a little bit, but what you'll find is all three key elements, and yet that's really what it is, is one mission. In fact, if any one of those three are lacking or hurting, it really shows a deficiency in all three. Imagine this being like a wheel with three spokes. Now imagine one of those spokes is shorter than the other. Tried driving down the road with that, right? The whole wheel's broken. In the same way, if any one of these three, worship, nurture, outreach, are lacking, it actually shows a deficiency in the whole thing. They're dependent on one another. True worship requires caring for one another. It also requires reaching out. And if you don't find outreach taking place, there's actually false worship at some level. And you could flip those all around. And our prayer as a church is that as we study this and as we really, this is who we are. So we come back to this almost every single year, probably more like every single week. And so we've spent two weeks talking about worship. We've spent two weeks talking about nurture. And here we come to the second week talking about outreach. And of course, if we're going to talk about outreach, we have to go to everyone's favorite passage on outreach, and that's 2 Kings chapter 7. I'm glad at least three people laughed. I'm, I'm kind of joking, but I'm not joking. We are going to 2 Kings 7, but I'm joking about it being everyone's favorite passage on outreach, because if I bet if I took a poll of the room, I'll bet most of us wouldn't have a clue what happens in 2 Kings 7, maybe, maybe in 2 Kings as a whole. But we've been doing our Bible reading plan, so maybe that sounds a little familiar with you, to you. Uh, but as you turn your Bibles on or open them up to 2 Kings chapter 7, uh, I need you to do that because if you're not familiar with this story, it's going to catch you off guard a little bit, and I need you to see that I'm not making this up. So 2 Kings, it's that good. <laughs> so 2 Kings chapter 7. Before we do that, I asked Micah Portis if he would, uh, Mike is on staff with us, works with our youth ministry. I asked him if he would help me with something. Micah, there's a basket right next to you. Can you grab one of them and pull it out for me here? Can you, what's in that basket? King size Reese's peanut butter cups. Ooh, that's too good to not share. Can you do me a favor? Can you share that with everyone here, please? be awesome. Thank you. I mean, peanut butter chocolate, too good, right? Can't keep that to yourself. Okay, so as Micah is doing that for us, as he's sharing that with everyone, and we're going to go into our passage here, 2 Kings chapter 7. Before we actually jump into 2 Kings chapter 7, I got to tell you a little bit of something about 2 Kings chapter 6 because, thanks Micah, because that, this story is a little bit random, and you're going to need to get a little context for it. So before we jump in, you need to know where we are in Israel's history. 
We're about 100 years past the rule of King Solomon. And when he ruled, he was the high point of Israel's history, their golden age. At this point, the nation is divided into two kingdoms. They had like a civil war, a split. Judah to the south with its capital in Jerusalem. And Israel to the north with its capital in Samaria. And that's where our action takes place. In 2 Kings 6, 24, you can either scroll up or just hear these verses and give you a little background to this little context. It says in verse 24, Sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. Now, Ben-Hadad is king of Aram, or it's often called Syria in other places. It's to the north of Israel, and they've been a really pesky neighbor constantly coming down and raiding, stealing, destroying, taking all the crops, all the, all the animals, and just making a mess of things. And now they've come with their full army strength, marched up against Samaria, and they are laying siege to Samaria. You might be familiar with what siege warfare is. It's basically a military, ancient military tactic where they would bring their army and they would encircle a city to suffocate it to cut off all the supply lines, cutting off the water, cutting off the food, in hopes that they wouldn't even have to lift a finger to fight the battle, basically starve out the city that's taken refuge inside the wall. And so the nation, the army that's attacking comes, and they start raiding all the villages, and they take all the stuff, and so they have plenty of supplies, but inside, everyone has fled from those villages, and so now there's an influx of people inside the city, but there's no food. There's no running water, right? There's no humanitarian aid coming via helicopter to come and bring help. And so things get desperate really, really quickly. The next verse, chapter 6, verse 25, tells us then, kind of naturally, that there was a great famine in the city. And the siege lasted so long, I'm going to get a picture of how desperate the situation is here, that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed pods for five shekels. A shekel, according to scholars, is the standard wage per month. And they're so desperate that they're buying a donkey's head. When's the last time you've seen a horse or a donkey? I I wouldn't say that I've ever looked at a donkey's head and thought, hmm, That looks good. Let's throw that on a grill tonight for dinner, right? They are desperate. There is no meat on a donkey's head. It's solid bone. Might not be bone. I don't know what it really is. But it's just, there's no meat. We know that. There's nothing to eat on it. And how much are they paying for this? 80 shekels. 80 months' wages. Nearly seven years They didn't have savings accounts like we do. They're desperate. And if you couldn't afford that, you could go and buy a quarter of a cab of seed pods. If you have a Bible with you in front of you, and you should have a little footnote on that, what does your footnote tell you what a seed pod is? It's dove's dung, it's bird poop. A quarter of a cab is about a quarter of a pound. Now, I've never gone to a deli around here and ordered a quarter of a pound of anything. It's so small. Much less bird poop. 
and it cost five months' wages. Do you sense the desperation here? There is such a need for food. They are dying. They are so desperate. This is what they're resorting to. And in fact, I really wish this is where the desperation stopped. In fact, the story goes on. You can skim and read it. I won't read it. But what you find is that they've actually then resorted to cannibalism. And they've actually begun eating their own young in order to sustain life. This is a level of desperation, a level of raw honesty that Scripture gives to us of the desperate place that these people are trapped in. Under siege, they have absolutely nothing. They're desperate to fill their bellies with anything, knowing that death is inevitable. Death by starvation inside the city, death by the Aramean soldiers outside the city. Death is certain. Without food, without hope. And if we would just sit in that for a moment, we, that's a desperation that we, we, I can't even fathom. But just try. Let that sink. And the king of Samaria is furious. And he begins to blame the prophet Elisha for bringing this on his people. And so he sends officers to go and kill Elisha. And that's where we pick this up in chapter 7, verse 1. The king sends a couple officers to go take out Elisha. And Elisha replies to them, Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, a seah, which is about 12 pounds of the finest flour, will sell for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. And the officer on whose arm the king was leaning said to the man of God, Look, even if the Lord should open up the floodgates of heaven, could this happen? You will see it with your own eyes, answered Elisha, but you will not eat any of it. Just pause there for a moment, because Elisha is holding out hope. This famine will not last forever. In fact, this famine is going to break tomorrow. He's not talking about free food. This is still a little bit pricey, but it's actually food, right? You can take flour, you can take barley, and actually make something that gives you nutrients and life out of it, rather than a donkey's head and bird poop. This is what's coming. But the officer doesn't believe it's possible. And based on his comments back, based on his critical judgment of God, he actually is going to miss out on this salvation that is coming. But it leaves us with the question of how in the world could this take place? How could God bring life to what is so certain death? But before the scene shifts, Micah, can you do me a favor? should be another basket in there somewhere. Grab another basket out. and Can you show us what's in there? Oh, king-size Snickers bars. Hungry? Why wait? Grab a Snickers. That's too good to keep and not share. Can you do me a favor? Can you share that with everyone here? Awesome. Thanks, Micah. I mean, if you're hungry, Snickers are a good way to go. Okay. So while Micah does that, when he finishes handing out and sharing that with everyone here, uh, Come back to 2 Kings 7, because the scene is about to shift. And it shifts to a very unlikely group of men. Pick it up in verse 3. Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. And they said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say, we'll go into the city, 
The famine is there, and we will die. And if we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live, and if they kill us, then we die. These men who have contagious skin diseases have been ostracized, rejected from the community, made to stay outside, not allowed to enter the city walls, and they're in the most desperate situation of anyone. They have no food, and they don't even have a wall protecting them from the Arameans. So basically, they come to a point where they're like, you know what? What have I got to lose in this? Verse 5, at dusk they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. And when they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army, so that they said to each other, look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk, abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys, and they left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. What has just happened? Salvation. This is not all of a sudden God gave them some good military tactics that they could defeat the Arameans. No, this is not good advice. This is good news. That out of absolutely nothing, doing nothing of their own, God has brought deliverance, freedom, life, salvation to a people that were in certain death. And the enemies of God's people ran and fled, and all that's left behind was food and salvation. Verse 8, the men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp, entered one of the tents, and ate and drank. Oh, just imagine that. Oh, just imagine that. Being that desperate and having food and drink available. Then they took silver and gold and clothes and went off and hid them. And they returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. And then they said, verse 9, to each other, What we are doing is not right. This is a day of good news. And we are keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let us go at once and report this to the royal palace. And so they went and they called out to the city gatekeepers and told them, We went into the Aramean camp and no one was there, not a sound of anyone. Only tethered horses and donkeys and the tents left just as they were. The gatekeepers shouted the news and it was reported within the palace. These men come upon an incredible act of God's grace and deliverance, and they're the first to receive this gift. And what is their default reaction? To keep it for myself. They are free. They are not desperate anymore. They have life. They are not starving. God has been merciful, and their thought is, more for me until conviction hits. And they say that what we are doing is not right. They recognize the injustice of these actions, that they were actually deserving of punishment, that they were just not right. Why? Because it's a day of good news. 
And how much would they have to absolutely hate their fellow Israelites? To have the means that can relieve this desperate starvation and keep it and hide it for themselves while their neighbors continue to literally devour each other in hopes to live. This day of good news is not just for them, but they are compelled to share it with others. Verse 16 then tells us eventually that the people went streaming out and plundered the camp of the Arameans so that a sea of the finest flour sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley sold for a shekel, as the Lord had said. And you can read the other pieces that we didn't go into there if you want to later today. But what an incredible story, right? What an incredible story of of deliverance. And what's amazing is as Christians, we read the Bible unashamedly through the lens of Christ. And there are certain stories that, as the Jesus Storybook Bible, one of our favorite books for our kids and for our whole family, says, every story whispers his name. The story whispering, it's shouting. I bet you I could have a number of you come up and finish this sermon for me if you'd like. Because this story is an unbelievably perfect picture of the reality that faces our human race. Every single one of us. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when we looked at the idea of worship. That that every single one of us comes into this world with a deep thirst or a deep hunger, desperate to find something that will fill our souls, that will give us life. And we are so desperate to find something that will satisfy. The problem is, like the people of Samaria, our desperation is actually leading us to fill our bellies with something that is not really food. And so we spend our lives trying to find meat on the donkey's head of success or on the donkey's head of people's approval, thinking that if we just keep gnawing on this thing, that somehow we'll get life out of it. If we just get that next job, a little bit more money, a little bit more achievements, then I will finally have satisfaction deep in my soul. The problem is it's a donkey's head, and there's nothing to give you life out of it. Or we spend our lives trying to fill up on seed pods, and we consume all kinds of poop, poop like Instagram and social media, and we, and we just keep numbing ourselves with comforts and securities, trying to think that if we can just absorb and numb it with alcohol, or pornography, or Netflix, or more food. The problem is, it cannot satisfy. Meanwhile, we devour and destroy our families, our friends, and others in order to achieve that, which is why the offer from God is so amazing. The offer of Isaiah 55 says this, come, All who are thirsty, come to the waters, you who have no money. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk and without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what will not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. And we all know, we actually talked about this a couple weeks ago too, We don't naturally take God up on his invitation, which is why Jesus comes, which is why God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, takes on flesh, becomes human like us, 
so that he can do what only God can do, which is to bring divine deliverance through a really strange way. He says, you have to eat me. Jesus says in John 6.51, he says, I am living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And the amazing thing is, like Isaiah talked about, this real bread doesn't cost you a single shekel. But it's free for you because it's already been paid. It's been paid by the blood of Jesus. He gave his life so that we would be able to eat real life, have a real relationship with God, which is what our souls have been longing for. He gave his life so that we could have himself and put away the donkey's head, put away the dove dung. And as Jesus hung on the cross, bearing our sin on himself, he cried out, it is finished. So that through his death and his resurrection, Jesus didn't just scare away the enemies of sin and death by some phantom thing. No, he actually brought them out into the light, embarrassed them and humiliated them and defeated them and left them powerless for you. He didn't save us from coming death. He saved us from the death we were already in. And you and I did nothing to deserve it and earn it. We simply receive. Listen to the way that Paul describes it in Ephesians 2. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ while we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is by his death and resurrection you can have real life, is not good news as to how to become a better person. It's not good tips on how to get saved. It is news that has come to you to be received by faith, to believe it. But there is no one and nothing else that can satisfy that hunger in your soul. And so the very first question is really important. Two questions coming out of this for us to think about. First question is really simple. Will you, like the lepers, surrender your life, turning in faith to Christ? What have I got to lose? Turn and look to Christ and receive the food that your soul is longing for. Because if you have not, today is the day of good news. You can actually have real food, real life. And if you have trusted in Christ, if you are trusting in Christ, then the good news still is today. Today is still a day of good news because death has no power over you. You are no longer dead in your sins. You are now dead to your sins and fear has no hold over you. Which brings me to the second question that if you today, church, are trusting in Christ, then you have to answer the second question, which is the same question that the lepers had to answer. And that question is, what will you do with this good news? Will you keep it to yourself, hoarding it and hiding it, while the world around us is in desperate need of life, eating up any donkey's head and bird poop they can find? Or will you proclaim it, what will you do with this sweet gift of freedom and life? And actually, speaking of sweet gift, Micah, you got another basket there? What do you have there? King-size Kit Kat bars. This is too good to not share. Micah, can you share that with everyone here, please? 
It'd be great. <laughs> While he's doing that, how are you feeling? I heard awful. <laughs> Hungry. How about you guys in the balcony? Jealous. How about you on live stream? You guys feel like you're out of range? If you're watching this on live stream right now, you know there is no way that this good news will reach you. No way that this sweet gift of, uh, of if, you like the great, if you like the gift, I think it's amazing. They're my favorites. You know there's no way that this amazing gift is going to make it to you unless someone here reorients their entire lives in order to bring it to you. Church, here's what's true for us. If you are looking to Christ in faith, then you know by his death and resurrection you are received by God, a child of God, eating the bread of life that gives life. You have tasted that is good. And you have the invitation the opportunity to take the gift that you have received and give it to others. Don't be frustrated with Micah. I told him to share it with the whole room. He shared it with the same people. Don't get me wrong. I will never graduate from my need for the gospel. I will always need the gospel served to me again and again and again and again. But it's never intended to just stay in this little group. It's never intended to stay within these walls. It's too good to not share. And we have to do some deep soul searching to say, what is going on? Why is it that our knee-jerk reaction is to do exactly what the, the leper's first reaction is, which is to keep it to ourselves, to not share it? Why do we want to hide it away for ourselves? I really believe that one of the main reasons why so many of you are bored as Christians has nothing to do with the good news not being good enough and just being okay news, not doing, having anything to do with who God is, but everything to do with the fact that you are sitting on the sideline and watching when you were created to participate in the spread of His kingdom, that you're too content leaving it to the professionals the problem is, you were created and designed to participate in this. And in fact, according to Ephesians 4, it's the job of pastors and staff and missionaries to actually equip the church to do the work of the ministry, to see you take the gospel to wherever you are, to the ends of the earth. If you want to be a part of something amazing, involve yourself in the kingdom of in the sharing of this day of good news. In fact, that is what we have been called to do. Jesus' last words, you're probably very familiar with them. Before he ascends to, the he to heaven, to the right hand of the Father, his call is this, Mark's version, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Acts, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, nearby, Judea, a little further, into the ends of the earth. Make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. 
what would it look like to take the gospel, to take this sweet gift of God's grace, of salvation, of lasting food, to wherever you go, which takes place both near and far. And near, God has placed you, Christian, in your job, in your neighborhood, in your community, in your class, kids, on your teams, for a purpose. What would it look like if we embraced that? Colossians chapter 4 gives us a little bit of a, 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 little bit of a, a really simple way of like, hey, this is actually much easier than you think. Colossians 4 verses 2 to 6 says, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us that, we might, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Three times in those verses he says, pray, pray, pray. And when we hear pray, we go, that's more like an excuse for us. Somebody's like, hey, do you want to do something? What do we say? Eh, let me pray about it. That's code for no thank you in church language. But we've, we've missed the power of prayer. In Ephesians chapter 6, when we're talking about this epic passage of put on the armor of God, let's go do some battle against the darkness. And verse 18 tells us what that battle is, and it says, pray on all occasions and in all types of prayers. That is the battle. You and I, we can, we can present the good news. We can't change someone's heart. But we're pleading with God to do a work in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, and then it goes on to say, be wise. Colossians 4 verse 5 says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. As we watch for opportunities, you will find them. Opportunities to be a part of what God is doing. Opportunities like our backyard VBSs, which are coming up in a month or so, because there are kids in your neighborhood who are hungry, desperately hungry. They don't know it because they're numb on video games. But there are kids in your neighborhood that are desperate for Jesus. And you can either be a host family, you can sign up to serve at someone else's house. And you can share with them that today is the day of good news. And lastly, it talks about your conversation being full of grace. What if our conversations look a lot less like our arguments take place in a larger culture, and a lot more full of grace and kindness. What would the power of hospitality, of asking good questions, do in the Northeast in 2021? What if we were more prone to say, hey, tell me your story, and we actually shut up and just listened? Hey, can I pray for you? How, how can I pray for you? What's going on in your world? Questions like, what do you think of Jesus? What do you think of the church? And see where those opportunities go, being watchful and thankful. What could God do in our neighborhood? And yet, the call is not just here, is it? In the same way, our friends on live stream would require someone going through a great deal of effort to take a little candy bar to them. How much more do the 7,400 plus ethnic groups not people, people groups with their own language and culture, their own history. According to the Joshua Project, 7,400 plus P 
people groups are considered unreached, with no access to the gospel, no Christian representation in their history. They have no idea that the, that the Aramean camp is empty. They have no idea that there is food and drink in Christ that will satisfy. They're busy gnawing on donkeys' heads. So the question is, how do we be a part of that? Because as a church, as an individual, you are not given the option whether you care about near or far. We care about both, and we're passionately invested in both. Number one, you pray. Just as a church, and you probably know other missionaries above that, but just as a church, we support over 25 missionaries who are a part of this right now. You heard it from Richard and Amanda just a few minutes ago. In fact, in the digital bulletin, which if you're a member, regular attender here, you had emailed or you can scan the QR code in the chair in front of you, in there are a couple resources. There's a digital missions booklet that lists all of Chelton's missionaries. Take that. Pray for them. And I don't mean pray for them in the way that gets you off the hook in a conversation. I'll pray for you. Pray for them. Be invested. It gives links to some books inside the digital bulletin. It gives you some links and books of emails and things, resources that you can be equipped to pray for the, around the world. Gosh, you can give over and above what you give to Chelton. Yes, we support missionaries. Encourage you. If you know other missionaries, give to support be a part of this. Be involved more than just financial. Get to know them. Ask questions. How can I care for you? How can I encourage you? How can you be a part of what is bigger? Maybe the Lord will give you an opportunity to go short term, and maybe, just maybe, the Lord is actually doing a work in your heart to reorient your world in order to take the sweet gift of grace to a people who have never heard. I'm talking to you young people, and I'm talking to you not-so-young people. Now, I know that not everyone, God is not calling everyone to go, and if as I say that, you breathe this deep sigh of relief, like, phew, I'm off the hook, then maybe He is actually doing something in your heart. Church, how do we be a part of this? How would we... Man, I just... This has been this prayer in my heart for a while. Lord, I would love to see Chelton be a church that raises up and sends out people to those in that 7,400 groups who have yet to hear that the siege is ended, that salvation is here. Because here's the reality. I cannot convince you to be a part of this. That is the work of the Spirit. But all I know is that 2 Kings 7 reminds me of the desperate place that I was in before Christ, of the desperate place that I would be in without Christ. And I know how easy it is for me to do what the lepers did, which is to sit back and say, you know what? I'll keep it to myself. And yet, today is a day of good news. And here's the beautiful thing. We know that this day, we know that this mission that we are on is destined to succeed. We get the end picture. Revelation 7 tells us that a great multitude will one day be standing before the throne that no one could count, 
from every nation, tribe, people, and language, saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of what God is doing to share the good news of what Christ has done to the world. How about you? Today is a day of good news. May we be found faithful in sharing that with others. Let's pray. Father, you have done what we could not do. You have freed us from from sin. You have freed us from death. You have freed us from the starving of our souls. And we, we could not be more thankful. And yet, Lord, would you make us a church that is not content just to receive it in ourselves, but would you, make a, would you compel us deep in our soul? Would you fill us with your love so much that it comes flowing out into everything we do? And may we be a church, may we be individuals who are passionate about our neighborhoods, about our schools, about our workplaces coming to know you. And may we be people who see the kingdom as bigger than just our little neighborhood. And would you light a passion in us to see the ends of the earth come? And Lord, pray in this for the long haul. Would you raise up workers from among our church to be a part of this? May we, every one of us in this church, take up this call to take this good news to wherever we go. Lord Jesus, we are your witnesses. By your Spirit, may we represent you well. May we love in the way that you have loved. And may we be, as D.T. Niles says, one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And that's you, Jesus. We love you and we bless you. You must do this work in us and through us. We humble ourselves and we submit ourselves to you for the life of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.